O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit, that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, if you'll open your Bibles to the last book, we are going to read Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11 today, a very brief section, but an important section, as we shall soon see. So beginning at verse 8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Two weeks ago, we came to this very important section of the last book of the Bible, the seven letters to the seven churches. And we took a look at the first of these letters, letter to the church in Ephesus. We said that actually in Asia, in the first century, there were more churches than just these seven But seven is a very symbolic number in the book of Revelation, and so these seven churches are meant to represent the church universal, the church Catholic. And what's more, these letters were meant to be a diagnostic tool for us. They were meant to be the means by which we examine our own life and our own church as a Christian people. So that's how we are to read these, in the same way that you would read a parable, for example. One of Jesus' parables, when you read a parable, you are supposed to read yourself into the story. You're supposed to ask yourself, who am I in this particular account? Well, that's how we're supposed to read these seven letters. We're supposed to ask ourselves, what is our church like? How does our church measure up? Of these seven churches, who are we most like? And we started by taking a look at the church in Ephesus. We're going to go back to that for just a moment because we didn't exactly finish it up. Uh, Jesus, in these seven letters, speaks words of praise to these churches. Well, for the most part, there is a church that he does not speak a word of praise to, the church in Laodicea. But for the most part, Jesus speaks a word of praise to these churches and a word of encouragement. But almost in every respect, there's only two exceptions to this, in almost every respect, Jesus has some sort of critique of the church as well. And that's where we didn't get to last time uh, when we looked at the book or we looked at the study of the church in Ephesus. So we're going to finish that up and then we're going to move on to this remarkable church here in Smyrna, uh, one of the only churches that Jesus has nothing negative to say, no critique whatsoever. It's not to say that they were a perfect church, but it means in terms of their witness, he had nothing negative to say about them. But first, this church in Ephesus. Just a quick review, remember of what the church in Ephesus was like. We said Ephesus was the most important of these seven churches, or at least the seven cities in which churches were established. Uh, Ephesus was the leading city in the Roman province of Asia. It was a large city. It was located on the Caister River. And that made it a very important commercial port. 
It was also a very cosmopolitan place because of its commercial value. Everything came and went through Ephesus at the time. Those of you who have been to Ephesus recently or at some other point know that it is an impressive place even today in its ruins. So you can just begin to imagine what it would have been like in the first century when John was writing. It was an absolutely remarkable place. Uh, It boasted a huge open-air theater, the largest open-air theater in the ancient world, larger than any in Athens even. 25,000 people could be seated in it. Its harbor could accommodate all of the major ships of the time. It was known for its temple dedicated to the goddess Artemis, or Diana. She was the goddess of the hunt. But most of the images that we have of Diana shows her being a rather grotesque, multi-breasted figure. Uh, In all of these temples, there was some sort of sexual element. There were always cultic prostitutes that took part in the rituals in these temples. And this was a very large temple in the ancient world. It was massive. It was much larger than the Parthenon at the top of the Acropolis in Athens, if that gives you any idea. So it was massive. The image of the goddess inside was believed to have fallen directly from heaven itself. So it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and people came from all over to worship this goddess in Ephesus. The city was wealthy, it was beautiful, but it was notoriously corrupt. We said that one of the famous people that lived there in Ephesus in this time period was Heraclitus. He was known as the weeping philosopher. And when somebody asked him why he was always weeping, he said no one could live in a place like Ephesus and not weep for its immorality. So that was the city of Ephesus in the first century, this very important commercial cosmopolitan place. And it was into this place, this commercial cosmopolitan but nevertheless corrupt city, that God planted a church. It was established by the Apostle Paul on his second and his third missionary journeys. Uh, Paul went there and spent a considerable amount of time during his second missionary journey. He would go back on his third missionary journey. I pointed out two weeks ago that Paul spent more time in Ephesus than he did in any other place during the course of his ministry. He spent at least three years in Ephesus. Now, three years, as I said, does not seem like a long time to us. But you have to remember, Paul was an itinerant preacher. He didn't go to have a long tenure in a place. So the fact that he poured himself into this place in Ephesus means that he recognized its strategic value. You could establish a Christian presence in a place like Ephesus. It wouldn't be long before the gospel, like everything else, was coming and going. And so he spent a substantial amount of time there. He had a profound impact there. The apostle wrote the letter from Rome to Ephesus, a letter to the Ephesians, which we have. A number of very prominent New Testament figures spent time in Ephesus following the apostle Paul. His young protege, Timothy, was ordained there and eventually became the leader and bishop of the church in that region. Priscilla and Aquila, the husband and wife team from Rome, likewise spent some time there. Apollos, Tychicus, they all worked there. John took up residence, we said, about four years after the church was established by the apostle Paul. But by the time he wrote the epistle uh, to this book of Revelation or these letters, the church in existence for some time. It had been in existence for about 40 years. So this would have been a well-established church, at least by first century standards, having been in existence for 40 years. What's more, this would have been the second generation of Christians. If these people had been converted as adults during Paul's ministry, 40 years later, what you've got is a second generation of Christians who've appeared on the scene. 
doesn't mean that the first have all died away. It just means that the leaders in the church now are the younger generation. But you also have to remember the fact that the average lifespan of a person in the first century was only about 40. So this definitely would have been the second generation of believers. Now, as we said, when Jesus critiques these churches, he normally has words of praise. There's something about these churches that is deserving of some sort of praise. And that was the case with the church in Ephesus. What did Jesus praise this church for? He praised them, first of all, he says, for their hard work and their perseverance. We see that in chapter 2, verse 2. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. We say that's very important because hard work should be something that is highly prized by Christians, but oftentimes it is not. We live in an age of leisure, and what we're most interested in is free time, the ability to do the things that we want to do. Now, there are, of course, some people who are workaholics in the world today, but it seems that the younger generation is more interested in how much free time they can get rather than in hard work. But hard work is something that is highly prized by God. I pointed out that even when God created Adam and Eve and He placed them in the Garden of Eden, in this paradise, they were not just lying about. He put them in the garden to work it, to care for it, to tend it, and to extend the blessings of Eden to the whole of creation. In other words, Adam and Eve were created for work. And you and I were created for work as well. One of the worst things, one of the worst things, not the worst, but one of the worst things that can be said about Christians is that they are lazy. Jesus was not lazy. Paul was not lazy. He toiled day and night, and these members of the church in Ephesus were not lazy either. Jesus said that was something that was to their credit. Second thing he says about them that is to their credit, he said, is that they had rejected false teaching. He said, I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And so they were a people who prized the truth. They recognized that truth is not a subjective category. It is an objective reality. This is what Jesus said in John 14. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life, the only way to the Father. Now, that's what theologians call the scandal of radical particularity. It's a scandal. Why? Because in our day, in an age of tolerance, that sounds rather cruel to say that Jesus is the only way. We say to ourselves, well, if there's going to be a way, God has to provide many ways. He can't just provide one way. Let me tell you something, folks. It's a mercy that God provides any way at all. He doesn't have to provide any way of salvation. If you and I were never saved, we would get exactly what we deserve. In other words, we would get justice. Don't ever ask justice from God. What you really want, if truth be known, if you understand who you are by nature, a sinner, what you really want from God is mercy, not justice. And we mustn't forget that. So truth is an important thing. And this was a church that was willing to defend the truth and even be thought intolerant in its defense of the truth. And not only knew how to spot uh, a false teacher a mile away, their heresy meter would go off. But what's more, they were willing to defend the truth as well. There's a mention in here of a particular heresy 
Uh, the Nicolaitans, in verse 6, it says, This you have, you hate the words or the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, I pointed out last or two weeks ago that we really don't know what the heresy of the Nicolaitans is. Somebody came up to me afterwards and said, I've always understood that to mean that it was the triumph of the laity. And it is true, the word Nicolaitan does have the word laos in it, from which we get the term laity. And he said, I've always understood that to mean that there are certain lay people that want to run the church. Well, that is certainly true. Um, but actually, scholars don't know exactly what this means. Uh, most scholars hold that if it has anything to do with the laity at all, it's not the triumph of the laity, it's the rise of clericalism and the rise of clericalism and over the laity. In other words, the clergy pushing the laity around. Now, that's probably what you think. The clergy, of course, think the other way around. But at any rate, whatever the problem was, whatever the heresy was, we really don't know, but it was something that was obviously a problem. And Jesus here, when he speaks to this church, says that he hates the works of the Nicolaitans, and it was to the credit of the Ephesian church that they hated them as well. So they had tested and rejected false prophets. They loved the truth. They were willing to be thought intolerant for the defense of the truth. Furthermore, he said they had endured hardship and not grown weary. Verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, which tells us that they were facing opposition from the culture around them. You could not seek to live a righteous life in a place like Ephesus and not expect that you were going to face intense opposition from the culture around you. And they were. You can't say that there is only one way, only one truth, and only one life in that type of cosmopolitan culture where there was a mixture of all kinds of people, all kinds of beliefs, and the temple to Artemis was right up there on the hill. You could not say that, no, Jesus is the only way and Artemis is not, and not face opposition. And so they were facing great pressure and difficulty in the culture, and yet Jesus said they had not grown weary. So there was much about this church that was praiseworthy in the first century. They worked hard. They persevered in the faith. They had tested and rejected false prophets, and they had endured hardship for the sake of the gospel. And they had not grown weary in well-doing. But I pointed out that for every church, while there are words of praise, with a few exceptions, two churches that were not critiqued, most of them are. And Ephesus certainly is critiqued. Jesus goes on to say, But there is one thing that I hold against you. And it's in verse 4. He said, you have forgotten your first love. Now, we asked the question two weeks ago, what is that a reference to? How was it that this church had forsaken or forgotten its first love? What was its first love? Well, some scholars have suggested that it was the love of the brethren. That is to say that they were praying on their knees on Sunday and on their neighbors every other day of the week. They weren't caring for each other. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, one of the pictures that you have of the early church is a church that was caring for one another. In those early days, the church really didn't do what we would call outreach into the community. The church was doing what we would call inreach. It was caring for its own in such a way that it was provoking the outside culture to jealousy. You have to understand, there were no charitable organizations that existed in the first century world. If you were poor, if you were destitute, you were left out on the street corner to die. It was the church was the only institution, the first institution really in the history of the world, to begin to care for those 
who were its members, and even care for those who were not yet its members. And it provoked the culture, the outside culture, to jealousy. People said, I don't know what those Christians have, but they care for each other. I want to be a part of that kind of an organization. And as a consequence, they begin to grow. Some have suggested that this was lost in the church in Ephesus with this second generation of believers. I don't think that's what's being described there. I think there's only one who can claim to be the first love of our life, and that would be Jesus Christ. I think that was the problem for the church in Ephesus. They had forsaken the love of Jesus Christ. Now you say, well, how can a church do that? Well, it's possible, you see, to do all of the things that the church in Ephesus was doing. Working hard, being about religious matters, but doing the right things for all the wrong reasons. You know, many people go to church for a whole host of reasons, not necessarily because they go there to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes you just want to go in and you want to get out and you want to punch your time card. And God forbid that they should go over an hour. Sometimes that's what happens, isn't it? So we do the right things, but we do them for all the wrong reasons. I think that was probably the case for this church in Ephesus with this second generation. They had been raised to do all of the right things, and they were doing them, but they were doing them out of a sense of duty, not out of a sense of love, out of a sense of obligation, not out of a sense of genuine care. And if the only reason that you provide for your family is a sense of duty and not of a sense of love, well... At least you're doing it, but it's not very impressive, is it? Well, that was probably the case with this church here. They were probably neglecting Christ's gospel as well. That is to say, they were not really preaching the gospel, the pure gospel that had converted their parents. We know what this looks like today. You neglect talking about the fallen state of man. You don't want to talk about the fact that people are not inherently good but inherently evil. Why? Because we find that offensive. And so we sort of downplay it, water it down. We don't want to talk about man's inability to reach God. We don't want to talk about Jesus' death upon the cross for our sins. In fact, there are some even today who argue that the idea that God had to send His Son to die upon a cross in order to redeem us, my goodness, that is a form of child abuse they have suggested. Well, imagine singing a hymn like that in a congregation where that kind of leadership is in power. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. See, we want to water down the gospel message, and that's probably what was happening here in Ephesus. Not to the extent that we find that in many mainline denominations today, but it was beginning in those days. So they were watering down this message and Jesus said he had this much against them. What was Christ's remedy for this church? Because we said while there is a critique, there is normally then a solution. Jesus offers them some words of advice. Here's where we broke off the last time. What is Jesus' advice to a church like this that has forgotten its first love, that is still doing all of the religious things but doing it for all the wrong reasons. Maybe showing up for church but not really worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth. What's his advice for a church like that? Jesus says two things. You can find it in chapter 2, verse 5. The first thing he says is, remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. And then the second thing he says is this, repent 
and do the works you did at first. The solution for a church that has become like the church in Ephesus, maybe going through the motions, but not really having their heart in it, the solution for this church is, first of all, to remember. Remember, first of all, he said, from what you have fallen. When I think about this, I think about the prodigal son, Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. You remember that parable? It's a parable of a young man who comes from an affluent family. The young man goes to his father, and when you put this in a first century context, it is very compelling because in the first century culture, it was very much a patriarchal environment. Fathers ruled their children. A father ruled his sons as long as he lived, no matter if they were adults or not. If you were an adult in the first century, you never really reached an age of freedom or accountability until your father was dead. And this young man comes up to his father in that kind of an environment, and he demands his inheritance. That was like saying to his father, I wish you were dead. Now his father could have thrown him out, but he doesn't do that. What we're told is that his father gave him his inheritance, and he went off and he squandered it in a distant land on loose living. Now, I don't need to describe for you what loose living is. You can just imagine it for yourself. Dissipation, whatever it was, it was loose living, and he descended to a very low place. Initially, he had all these friends, great parties, everything was going on, but when he ran out of cash, he ran out of friends. They were fair weather. And he descended, Jesus said, to a very low place. He was Jewish, but he found himself living and feeding pigs and longing to eat what the pigs were eating. That is about as far down as you can possibly go as a Jew. He'd really hit bottom. And what happened when he was there in the pigsty? Two things happened. The two things that Jesus talks about here in this letter to the church in Ephesus. First of all, he remembered. What did he remember? Well, he remembered, first of all, his rebellion. How terrible he had been to his father. But he remembered something else. He remembered the love of his father. He remembered the compassion and the mercy of his father. And then having remembered those two things, his own wickedness and his father's love and mercy, he did what? He did the second thing. He repented. He said, I will rise and go back to my father. That's what the word repent means. The Greek word is metanoia. It means to have a change of mind. But a change of mind that not only affects your thinking, it affects your actions as well. He said, I will go back and if necessary, be a slave in my father's household. And what happened when he got back home? He saw that his father had been watching for him day after day. He didn't have to go up to the door and knock. We're told his father was standing at the window waiting for him and went out and met him on the road and embraced him when he came back. Put a mantle about his shoulders, a ring upon his finger. He killed the fatted calf. He said, this son of mine who was dead is alive again. He who was lost has been found. Jesus said the cure for a church like the church in Ephesus that is doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons, just going through the motion, and this applies not only to the church but to individual lives, is to remember that we are the prodigal, that we have wandered far afield of God's grace and mercy. We have basically, by our actions, by the way that we have lived, said to God, I wish you were dead. 
But then we remember His grace, His mercy, and His love, and we turn and we do what? We come back to Him, and we find that He does not throw us out, but He welcomes us back, and He makes us His sons and His daughters again. And He rejoices over the 99, yes, who never left, but more over the one who comes back. That's the solution if your heart has grown cold. If you're just going through the motions, doing all of the right things out of a sense of duty, but not out of a sense of love, my friends, then Jesus' words to you are, remember. Remember how far you've fallen, and remember the grace and the mercy of your Father. Get up, repent, go home. That's Jesus' advice to the church in Ephesus. Well, we ask the question, are we at St. Philip's like the church in Ephesus? See, that's the question we're supposed to ask ourselves at the end of each one of these letters. Are we like that church in some way? Are we like the church in Ephesus? And if we are, then Jesus' solution for that church is the solution for us too. In this case, we are to remember how far we have fallen and remember His mercy, which is wider, wider than the sea. Well, we come now to the church in Smyrna. How would you like to be a part of a church about which Jesus has nothing negative to say? Because Smyrna is one of those churches. There's only one other about which Jesus has nothing but praise, and that is the church in Philadelphia. But here Jesus has nothing negative to say about this church in Smyrna. This is the shortest, incidentally, of the letters, of the seven letters the church And Smyrna received the fewest words, but some of the highest praise. Let me just go ahead and read these words again. It's very brief. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The church in Smyrna, or the city of Smyrna, I should say, is one of the only cities that Jesus refers to here in the book of Revelation that is still in existence today. Smyrna is located where the modern city of Izmir is in Turkey today. So the city is still in existence. We need to understand a little bit about this church like we needed to understand a little bit about the city of Ephesus. Smyrna was a remarkable place in the first century. It was a rival to Ephesus. It had a population of about 200,000. It was about 35 miles north of Ephesus on an arm of the Aegean. It had a harbor, not as big as the harbor at Ephesus, but it had the safest harbor in the ancient world because it had a narrow entrance, and in order to keep invading ships out, the only thing you needed to do was to lay a chain across the entrance to the harbor, and ships could not enter. So it was a very safe harbor, and as I said, it was the rival to Ephesus. Of all the churches and of all the cities that are mentioned, Smyrna was probably the most beautiful of the cities in Asia. 
in this part of the Roman Empire. It was referred to as the ornament and the flower of Asia, and it boasted a number of very important public buildings. It had a large public library. This was a free city in the first century, and so the library would have been accessible to all citizens. It had an odeon where they had outdoor musical concerts, and uh, plays would be performed in this outdoor theater. It was a city that claimed to be the birthplace of Homer. Now, I say claim because there were many cities in the ancient world that claimed to be the birthplace of Homer. But this was one of them, and his poems were often recited publicly in the audience. So this was a city that had a great deal of culture. It was the home to a series of famous athletic games, second only to the Olympic Games in Athens. Uh, people came from all over the province of Asia to participate in these Olympic Games. It was known for its magnificent architecture. The city was built into a hillside that went gradually up from the harbor, and at the top there were all of these magnificent temples. It was one of the only planned cities in the ancient world. It was like Washington, D.C., which was a planned city, or like Savannah, Georgia, which was a planned city with all of its various squares and so forth. Most cities in the ancient world started off as little villages, and they sort of just grew up like a lot of villages and towns in England. But that was not the way it was here. This city had been destroyed, the village, and it had been rebuilt in grand fashion, and it was a planned city. So it was magnificent. It had broad avenues with trees and that sort of thing. It was an absolutely splendid place. And it was renowned for its architecture. But because it was a Greco-Roman town, you can imagine it was filled with all kinds of temples and idols as well, just like Athens. There were temples dedicated to Sibylla, Zeus, Apollo, Aphrodite, and Asclepius, the god of healing. Its most famous street was known as the Street of Gold, which ran between the temple of Sibylla to the temple of Zeus. And they said that it ran like a necklace around the neck of a great goddess. It was a magnificent place. If you go there today, even today, uh, the ruins are just absolutely amazing. A beautiful place in the first century the flower and the ornament of Asia. This is what Aristides, who was a Christian and a Greek, said about the city. He was writing about the time that John wrote this revelation. He said, there is a grace which extends over every part of the city like a rainbow, the brightness of which pervades every part and reaches up to the heavens like the glitter of the bronze armor of Homer. It is a flower of beauty such as earth and sun never shone to mankind. So Smyrna was a magnificent city in the first century. It was also a loyal city. During the Punic Wars, when Rome was fighting with Carthage, and uh, the outcome of that was still very much undecided. This is long before Rome was actually ruling over the known world of the time. We remember the Roman Empire when it was at the height of its glory. But this was then, that was still undecided. This portion of Asia was still being contested. But we're told that the people of Smyrna actually sided with Rome very early on. They threw in their lot with the Romans. In fact, there was one point where the Romans had been badly defeated by the Carthaginians in battle, and the people of Smyrna were so concerned for the Roman soldiers that they took off their own clothing and sent them to the soldiers who were out there in the field. So this was a very loyal city. It was a very Roman city. They prided themselves on their connection with the Roman Empire. They were the first city in the known world to build a temple to the goddess Roma. That is to say, the personification of Rome. 
Roma would be similar to Columbia today. If you go to Washington, D.C., there is a statue on the top of the dome of the Capitol building, and it's what? It's Columbia. She's the personification of America. Well, that's what Roma was. This was the first city in the ancient world to dedicate a monument or a temple to the goddess of Rome. Incidentally, the same goddess in the book of Revelation is referred to as the Whore of Babylon. So this was a city that was very, very Roman. And not surprising, it therefore became the center for cultic worship of the emperor. This was the center for emperor worship in the ancient world. In the year 26 AD, they were accorded a special honor. Uh, one of the cities in Asia was going to have to erect a monument to the emperor Tiberius where he would be worshipped. And a number of cities wanted the honor. And they were all competing, and Smyrna won, even beating out Ephesus, which at this time was more important. So it was a city that was beautiful, it was magnificent, it was the great rival to Ephesus to the south, it was a loyal city to the Roman Empire. And it was here in this place, as in Ephesus, that a church was planted. Now we don't know much about the planning of the church in Smyrna, to be perfectly honest with you. It was probably done by the Apostle Paul. There is a reference in Acts chapter 19 to the fact that while Paul was in Ephesus, the word of the Lord spread throughout the province of Asia. So it's probably in the mid-50s, as Paul was ministering in Ephesus and the gospel was spreading, he was there for three years, it spread 36 miles to the north, at least as the crow flies to this city of Smyrna. And whether the city was actually established by Paul, it was probably established by his disciples or those who had come from Ephesus and taken their faith with them. This was a church that was characterized by suffering. That point is made very clear. Jesus says in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty. This is a church that was suffering greatly. It was suffering for a couple of reasons. First of all, because this was the center of emperor worship. If there was one thing that would get you martyred in the first century, it was to go around proclaiming that there was another king besides Caesar. Truth be known, that is what got Paul martyred in Rome. It was not Paul going around saying you have to be saved by grace through faith and not by works lest any man should boast. And we call that the good news, and it is good news for us. But let me tell you something. In the ancient world, they would have said, well, I don't understand what that is. It's nonsense. I don't care. But if you go around preaching that Jesus is Lord, what that means is that Caesar is not. And that will get you into trouble. You'll recall that's ultimately what got Jesus crucified. When he was brought before Pontius Pilate, they couldn't find any fault in him. Pilate washed his hands and said, I don't find anything wrong with the man. And they said, oh, the problem is he claims to be a king and we have no king but Caesar. Now, you begin to say something like that in the first century and you're going to be in big trouble. And if this is a center for cultic worship and these are people who are taking seriously the faith, what that means is that they can't go and offer up sacrifices or incense to the emperor. Why? Because they are loyal to the only Lord there is, Jesus Christ. Well, you can imagine what's going to happen in that kind of an environment. They were going to be persecuted. The other thing is this. There was a large Jewish population there as well, and there's a reference to that here in verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not. So they were under pressure from the Jewish community as well. So from those who were pagans, but also from those who were Jews. We have a great illustration in the life of one individual of the kind of persecution that this church was enduring in the first century. It's the story of a man by the name of Polycarp. Who is Polycarp? Polycarp was 
a pupil of John the Evangelist. That is to say, the man who received this revelation, John, was his teacher, Polycarp's teacher. And so when this book of Revelation was sent to the various churches, this particular copy was probably sent to Polycarp, who at this point was the leader of the church in Smyrna. He was an old man by this point, but he was a pupil of John the Evangelist. He became a martyr. He was martyred, we know the exact date, the 23rd of February in the year 155. It took place at the time of those games that I mentioned earlier. I said those great games took place there in Smyrna, games that were comparable to the games, the Olympic Games in Athens. Well, this was a time of great festivity in the life of the city. There was a great deal of nationalistic feeling that was taking place in the city. And there were crowds in the streets and all kinds of entertainment and so forth. And in the midst of all of this nationalistic feeling, somebody shouted out, Death to the atheist. Find Polycarp. Now they called Polycarp an atheist, not because he didn't believe in any god, but because he didn't believe in their gods. That's what made you an atheist in the ancient world. You didn't believe in the Roman gods. And so they said, find Polycarp, death to the atheist. For whatever reason, Polycarp became the center of their anger and their hostility. Soldiers were sent to find him, ordered by the proconsul. Um, they wouldn't have known where he was except that they took a young boy who was a Christian and tortured him until finally he gave up the information. When they came to Polycarp's house, he met the soldiers. He did not resist them. He was in his 80s by this point. In fact, he invited the soldiers in and gave them a meal. And after he had fed them, he then agreed to go with them. Well, while they're on the way, the captain of the guard realizes that Polycarp is a kind man. He's a generous man, and he encourages him. He says, listen, there's a way for you to get out of this. All you need to do is to offer up some incense to the emperor. That, that's all you need to do. What's the harm in that? You can imagine the same sort of thing being said to us today. Look, you need to save your skin. Look, you, there's much more work for you to do. Just go ahead in and offer up a little bit of incense. Say a prayer to another god. What difference does it make? You don't have to believe it in your heart. Just go ahead and do it. Save your skin. This was Polycarp's famous reply. He said, 80 and 6 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? You threaten me with the fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched, for you do not know the fire which awaits the wicked in the judgment to come and in everlasting punishment. Why are you waiting? Come and do what you will. They brought him before the proconsul, who was the representative of the Roman Senate. He ordered Polycarp to recant his faith. Polycarp refused to do it. The people went crazy. They began to go through the streets. They carried him on their shoulders, tearing apart shops for wood where they were going to burn him at the stake. They took him. They were tying him to the stake. They were going to nail him there, but he insisted that there was no need to do so. He would not run. He would not flee. He would endure the flames. He said, I'm only facing the first death. I will be preserved if I persevere to the end from the second. And so they tied him loosely to the stake, and as the flames leapt up around his body, he prayed this prayer, which was actually taken down verbatim by the Christians who were in the crowd. 
They recognized that this was their father in God. They recognized that he was a great man, and they wanted to get his last words. And these were the last words of Polycarp. Listen to this prayer. O Lord God, Almighty Father of thy beloved and blessed child, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received full knowledge of thee, God of angels and powers and of all creation and of the whole family of the righteous who live before thee, I bless thee that thou hast granted me unto this day and hour that I may share among the number of the martyrs and the cup of thy Christ for resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body, in the immortality of the Holy Spirit. And may I today be received among them before thee as a rich and acceptable sacrifice, as thou, the God without falsehood and of truth, has prepared beforehand and shown forth and fulfilled. For this reason, I also praise thee for all things. I bless thee, I glorify thee through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, thy beloved child, for whom be glory to thee with him and the Holy Spirit, both now and for the ages that are to come. Amen. And so passed from this earth the leader of the church in Smyrna, Polycarp. Well, you see, that's what the church in Smyrna was facing. An ancient document suggests that Polycarp was the 11th of the martyrs thus far in Smyrna for the sake of the gospel. Well, not surprising then, this brief letter to the church in Smyrna, here in verses 8 through 11, is a letter that speaks at great length about death. Because that's what this church was facing, my friends. They were not simply facing difficulty. They were facing death in a beautiful environment. But for the sake of Jesus Christ, it had become a place of misery, suffering, and martyrdom. The word Smyrna is interesting. It is very similar and it's often associated with myrrh, the word myrrh. It's the same root. You may recall that myrrh was one of the ointments that was used in embalming. When Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came to take Jesus' body, which was down from the cross, and put it in the tomb, they brought with them aloes and myrrh to anoint the body. So there was a sense in which there was in this church in Smyrna the fragrance of death. And yet, it's interesting, I pointed out to you two weeks ago that in all of these letters there is at the beginning an appearance of Jesus Christ. In the case of Ephesus, Jesus Christ appears as what? The one who is walking among the seven golden lampstands and holds the seven stars in his hand. Remember that? The seven stars representing the church. It was a reminder to the church in Ephesus that God held them in the palm of his hand. Well, here Jesus is depicted as well, but this time he is depicted in verse 8 as the one who overcomes death. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life Again, why is Jesus depicted in that way to the church in Smyrna? For the obvious reason. They were facing death, and this was meant to be an encouragement to them, that Jesus Christ had likewise died, but he did not remain dead. He was the firstborn of those who had fallen asleep. The firstborn, but not the last. So whatever they were facing, whatever persecution or hardship that they were going to have to endure, they were to remember that this was not the end. For the Christian, death is not the end. It is the portal to the life Elysium. That was the hope that they were to have. We're not going to get through all of this, so I'm almost 
hesitant to begin it, but I've got two minutes. Jesus says four things to this church facing difficulty. First of all, he says, I know your afflictions. Jesus knew what they were going through. He was not oblivious. You know, sometimes when you're going through difficult times, you wonder, does God see, does God understand, does God know? First thing that was told to this church was, I know your afflictions. I know what you're facing. Second thing he says is, I know your poverty. This was a poor church. And when I say a poor church, I mean literally poor. There are two Greek words for poverty. We're going to look at them next week. But this was the worst kind of poverty. It was abject poverty. Everything had been taken away from these people because of their faith in Jesus Christ. He says, I know your afflictions. I know you are poor. It's interesting. He says, I know you are poor, and yet, he says, you are rich. This is the only one of the churches that is described as being rich in spite of the fact that physically they were the poorest of all the churches. Contrast that with the church that we encounter at the end of these seven letters, the church in Laodicea, which was an affluent church in an affluent culture, and yet Jesus said they are spiritually poor. So he says, I know your poverty. He says, I know you've been slandered. Slander in this type of a world and this kind of a situation was extremely dangerous. He said, I know you've been slandered. Jesus knew what it was to be slandered, didn't he? All kinds of false accusations were made against him when he was brought before the Roman authorities. Finally, Jesus says, I know you will face prison and death. That's what this church was facing for the sake of the faith. But as we will see next week, there are words of encouragement. There are words of comfort. There are words that can steal them and give them the strength to overcome. Here's the question for us. Are we like that church? The question is not, are Christians suffering in the world today? It's obvious that they are. Those who are concerned for the suffering of Christians in the world will tell you that more Christians died as a result of their faith in the 20th century than in all previous centuries combined. Hard for us to believe, in large measure, because we've been insulated, but it's true, more Christians died for their faith in the 20th century than in all previous centuries combined. We think of the great persecution taking place under Diocletian or Nero or so forth, but more Christians died for their faith in the 20th century than in all previous centuries combined. But the question is not, are Christians suffering for their faith? The question is, are we suffering for our faith? The reality is there's very little suffering that takes place in America or in Western culture today for the sake of the gospel. And yet the early Christians understood that suffering was a badge of the true church. Suffering was a badge of the true church. Now that doesn't mean that you go out and you purposely antagonize people, but what it does mean is that if you are faithful to the gospel, if you are faithful to the truth, as the people in Ephesus and Smyrna were endeavoring to be, you will face difficulty. You will face hardship. You will face opposition. Why? Because you are living in a way that is counter-cultural. Perhaps the saddest commentary that can be said about the present day church is that we don't suffer much at all for the sake of the gospel. Truth be known, we do everything in our power to avoid suffering, don't we? What happens to a church that avoids it? Well, you'll have to come back next week (laughs) and find out. Always a cliffhanger. 
Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks and praise for these letters to the seven churches. They are meant to be a means by which we examine ourselves as the church, as the church in the present day. On this All Saints Sunday, remind us of those who have gone before, those who have fought the good fight, who've finished the race, who've kept the faith, and who now have received that crown of glory which fadeth not away. Help us to be like them, to be inspired by their witness, by the witness of people like Polycarp, who's numbered among the saints triumphant today. That we who are still members of the church militant may live in such a way that we may be numbered with them in glory everlasting. Grant that we who endure the first death might be preserved unto the end, that we might not be hurt by the second. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.